The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. Hear the word of the Lord. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may prove what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody here as we gather to sit under God's word. If you're new among us, we're the third sermon into our series in Philippians. And we look this morning at Paul's prayer for the Philippian church. And for those of you who have a good memory, you'll remember that this is the text I preached on when I candidated here at Bethlehem about more than five years ago now. And the reason I gave for preaching that text for my candidating sermon was because it's the prayer that I pray most for my children and for myself And it's probably still true. I pray this prayer all the time, perhaps daily, for my children, for myself, for my family, for this church. And I want that to be true of us this morning. And so would you join me as we pray and look at God's word? Father in heaven, only you can enliven our hearts and open our minds and fill us with your truth. And fill us with your love. And so do that this morning through the power of your word for your glory and for our joy and for the growth of your church so that you would be pleased. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I was going to begin with an illustration about a song that the Beatles wrote, but I realized that would date me and... Many of you are like, the who? Uh, They're like the BTS or the Taylor Swift of the 60s, maybe, uh, is one way to put it. The Beatles debuted a song, All You Need Is Love, in 1967, and performed it during the very first live global television link. And it was seen by more than 400 million people in over 25 countries. And they were tapping in to the instinct and the desires of that time, which is all we need is just a little bit more love and not war, not division, not polarization. All we need is just a little bit more love and then everything would be all right. And my guess is, despite the differences in our world today, many would still resonate with this refrain. All we need is love. Despite all the division and polarization and, and everything else, war, anger, just a little bit more love. The massive problem, though, that we face today is not the desire, the collective desire for love, but it's actually the redefinition and it's the distortion of love. So think with me for a moment. The idea of love today is being used as a bludgeon to beat people over the head 
to fall in line with the moral bankruptcy of our society. So various causes have co-opted love to reframe wickedness and evil. So let me just give you two examples. What God condemns, others reframe as just letting people marry who they love. That was spoken by our president earlier this week. A pro-abortion organization has a campaign that reframes abortion like this, quote, What is abortion actually? It's compassion. It's healing. It's selfless. It's love. And it's so much more. My mind is just blown that you can make a case to redefine abortion as love. It's murder. Another example today is the pressure on parents to quote-unquote, love their children by encouraging them to get gender-affirming care, such as puberty blockers and hormone therapy and transition therapies. And I'm not trying to stoke up anxiety and fear. It's just the fact that these things are commonplace. If you walk the aisles of the books in Target, you'll see books that are advancing this very ideology at our local libraries. We have the institutions of our day that affirm good as evil and evil as good. Our society celebrates wickedness and debauchery and they call it love. This is like saying smoking cigarettes is health care as long as you get the organic tobacco. And Jesus identified this instinct in his day. John three nineteen. he said, The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. So if you can't get people to love the darkness with you, then you redefine it as light itself. So what's the solution? How do we combat wickedness that masquerades as love? How do we address evil that is dressed up and adorned as love? Paul's prayer in Philippians 1, 9 to 11, I think, addresses that for us this morning. Now, the Philippians, in their context, were not facing necessarily these distortions or these redefinitions of love in their day. But they were experiencing envy and rivalry and selfish ambition. We'll see that next week when Pastor Catterson preaches that. The Philippians had false teachers among them. In chapter 3, Paul says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So there were people who were putting extra biblical requirements upon the church. And so Paul prays for the Philippians in this intercessory prayer, and he's seeking to help them understand what he wants of them. And I think the main point of Paul's prayer is this. That the church's love is to abound, leading to more wisdom, holiness, and righteousness. The church's love is to abound, leading to wisdom, holiness, and righteousness. That would be for the glory of God. So Paul doesn't want less love in combating redefinitions of love, but he's saying, let true love abound. So our plan is to ask two main questions of our text this morning. What does Paul pray for? And we're going to see that primarily from verse nine. And then what does, what result does Paul expect? And we'll see that in verses 10 and 11. And my hope this morning is that we would come to understand this prayer, to see how 
profound and amazing it is so that we would commit it to memory and that we would pray it for ourselves, for those we love, and for this church. So look with me at verse 9. Paul writes, And it is my prayer that your love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So in verse 4 of chapter 1, Paul has just told them, I'm, every time I think about you guys, I'm praying for you. I, I pray for you all the time with joy. And now he says, this is what I'm praying for, that your love would abound more and more. This idea of growing and increasing and multiplying, not just remaining static. Now, the key question here is, is Paul referring to the Philippians' love for God, a vertical love, or is he referring to a horizontal love, your love for others? And our, pos- our passage doesn't tell us. And, and I think it's this. Paul is praying for the Philippians' horizontal love for each other, but that it's rooted in having been loved by God. God's love come down to them. And I'm, I think there's a number of clues here in our passage. The first clue is that Paul previously thanks God for the Philippians' partnership in the gospel. Thank you for how your partnership with me, your tangible expression of love in a financial gift was given to me. The second clue is he had just said in verse 8, the immediately preceding verse, he says, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So he says, I love you, but with a love that's rooted in God. And now I want you to love others with a love that's rooted in God as well. In chapter 4, verse 9, Paul says, practice what you have learned and heard and seen in me. And so he's modeling for them a love that he wants them to also display towards others. And then later in the passage, he addresses those who operate out of envy and rivalry. And what does he call them to do? He calls them to look at Jesus' example in chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, of humility so that you might love each other. So I think Paul has in mind this love for each other, horizontal love, that's rooted in this vertical love from God. Because we know... Paul wrote elsewhere, Romans 5, 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has, who has been given to us. Or the passage we read this morning, we love because God first loved us, 1 John four nineteen. Later on in the book of Philippians, Paul calls them the beloved children of God. He wants them to remember who they are. They are loved by God so that they would then turn around and let that love flow out and through them. So Paul prays for abounding love as evidence of having been loved by God. So why does this matter? Well, God pours his love into our hearts by the Spirit, and it's supposed to continue to multiply and replicate and increase. This is like uh, Everlasting Gobstopper from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. You guys know what I'm talking about? You know, it, 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 it's this fictional candy that uh, doesn't ever diminish, doesn't ever disappear. It just continues to give off colors and flavors as you eat of this candy. 
And love among the church is not a zero-sum game. If I show you love over there, then I don't have as much love to show these people over here, and then I don't have enough love for my family. That's not how it works. He says, as we show love for each other, as we expend ourselves, God's love, it gets poured into our hearts, and it keeps going out. And so Paul is praying for this abounding love. It's at no point does a husband say to his wife, I, I told you that the day we got married, I loved you. Why do you have to hear it again? That's not going to go well for him, right? You want that love to continue to grow and abound and find new ways of loving one another. God's love poured into the heart of a believer is like light that goes into a prism. And then it refracts out with all sorts of colors and wavelengths. And that's what love is supposed to do within the body of Christ. Paul prays for them not to grow weary in loving. And we know that they were dealing with rivalry and dissension and disunity. And he says, don't stop loving each other. The temptation for you, Philippians, and for us, Bethlehem, is to grow in cynicism and mistrust and to think, oh, I got burned once, not going to get burned again. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. The way you fight distortions of love, redefinitions of love, or falling short love is to abound all the more in the love of God. Love is our calling card, is it not? By this, the world will know that we are your disciples. By what? By our love for one another. That is what we are to be known for. So in a world where everyone is co-opting, redefining, and distorting love, we don't say, okay, you get love. We'll just be all about truth. But we say, no, no, no. We're going to reclaim love for what it is. And that's what Paul does in this next section. He says, this love is to be abounding with knowledge. Look at verse 1. With knowledge and all discernment. So think of it like this. Some of you have knives and some of you have knife sharpeners, right? I have this knife sharpener that has two little things and you pull the blade across and one of those things sharpens one side and one of those things sharpens the other and you're just supposed to pull it back and forth and it hones and sharpens that blade, right? And I think the idea here is that love is like a knife that is being sharpened and honed and forged by knowledge and discernment. Without it, love grows dull. And you know that the most dangerous thing to have in the kitchen is a dull knife. You want your knife to be sharp and effective at doing the task. So Paul's mention of knowledge, initially, might seem surprising. Because we know from 1 Corinthians 8, Paul writes, Knowledge puffs up, gives us a big head, but love builds up. But here Paul puts love right alongside knowledge and all discernment. Why does he do that? Well, this knowledge, I think he's referring to knowing God and his ways and living in accord to what God says. This is not just head knowledge, but knowledge that results in obedience. So later in Philippians, Paul writes that he counts everything else as loss for the surpassing worth of what? Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The thing he wants more than anything else is knowing Christ. So this knowledge that's supposed to go hand in hand with love is knowledge of Jesus. 
not just intellectual knowledge, but experiential. He wants them to know Christ and love Christ and to obey Christ. And on the other side, we have discernment. Discernment suggests insight or wisdom or the ability to judge rightly in a particular situation. And the word appears only here in the New Testament, but it shows up a bunch in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, particularly in Proverbs. So it's this idea of wisdom to know the right thing at the right time, a situational wisdom, if you will a judgment call in the midst of the gray. So Paul wants the Philippians to love, to have their love abound more and more, but let's make sure that it's honed and sharpened and guarded by knowledge of God on one side and discernment, wisdom that God gives on the other side. And this is such a timely exhortation for us. Love must go hand in hand with truth. Love must go hand in hand with truth. So to love others, we have to define what love is. We were talking among the pastoral staff meeting earlier this week, and uh, one of the definitions that was thrown out is love is wanting for others what God wants for them. Love is wanting for others what God would want for them. Love isn't blind. Love tells the truth. In our world today, evil masks itself as love. Love has become the Trojan horse where all sorts of ideologies are being shoved in there so that it can be brought into our culture and into the church as well. And as Christians, we need to make sure we never divorce love and truth. We don't want to concede either one. You can have the truth. We'll just be loving people. Or you can have the love. We'll just be truth-filled people. We must have both. We ought not grow weary or cynical, but abound in love that is tethered to, at all times, to the truth of God and of his word. And just a word for us today. I think this is the, one of the main battlegrounds of our day. This is so important for us to catch. Our, our government, Fortune 500 companies, social media entities, entertainment behemoths. You you can just see it on all the commercials. They are advancing an agenda that says, this is love. Peddling wickedness as self-expression. And at the end of the day, only the love of God in Christ Jesus can save. So we don't fight distortions of love and redefinitions of love with hate or with anger. And some of us are tempted to do that, aren't we? But what we do is we fight these distortions and redefinitions of love that's masking wickedness by holding up a different Christ-like love that is so tethered to truth that we want for people what God wants for them. And we will be unwavering in both truth and love. Love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Luke 6, 27. And, and the reality is we're going to need discernment to do this, won't we? It's going to look different in our culture, in social media, and at our companies, and at work, and around the dining room table, and with our family. We're going to need to speak differently, still tethered to truth and love, but it's going to have to look different. And we need God's wisdom. 
Paul writes in chapter 2 of Philippians 2.15, we are to be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. These are apt words for us. We are living in a crooked and twisted generation, and we are to be blameless and innocent and shine as lights in the world. So I'm going to call us to that reality. We have a world of hurting people who are so confused about everything. They lack hope. I I, I was reading Jonah earlier this week. Right at the end of Jonah, God kind of teaches Jonah his lesson. And, And right at the end, he says, don't you know that in Nineveh, there are all these people who don't know their right hand from their left? Well, how would you not know your right hand from your left? He's like, they're that blind to plain realities. And that's the world we live in. Is it a boy or is it a girl or is it some mixture of the two? No, 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 no. We have people who don't know their left hand from their right. And what does God say about that? I have compassion on them. I have pity on them. And he sends Jonah to preach. That's who we are, brothers and sisters. We're sent ones to preach. Now, what result does Paul expect. Look with me at verses 10 and 11. He says, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So Paul prays for their love to abound that's going to be honed by knowledge and all discernment so that it would result in so that, and here's how I would summarize it, right judgment, right living, and ultimately righteousness. Right judgment, right living, and ultimately righteousness. So the first thing we see is that they would be able to approve what is excellent. So I see this as sort of right judgment or wisdom. He wants them to have wisdom. He wants them to be able to discern what's good and bad and really what's ultimately best. I want you to identify these counterfeit loves out there in the world. In chapter 4, Chapter 4, verse 8, many of you know this verse. Paul says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And so that verse assumes that God is answering this prayer so that they're able to identify what is truly good, what's excellent, what's pure, what's honorable. Think about those things, not the other things. And Paul actually models this for us in chapter 3. This was new for me. Chapter 3, Paul writes, verse 5, Paul says this, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So he's going through his top-notch resume and saying, look at all the things that I once found excellent, the things that I thought were most important. And then he says in verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. So at Paul's conversion, he realized all the things that I thought were most important weren't important at all in comparison with Jesus. He He wasn't approving what was excellent. Jesus is excellent, but works and a self-made righteousness is not. 
Paul himself says, I want you to do better than me. I missed it for so long. I want you guys to be able to identify what is truly excellent, approve what is excellent. We need discernment. We need wisdom. We need right judgment. Why is this important? Paul wants the Philippians to live for what matters and to identify what matters. And the reason this is important for us is because we are presented with dozens of options and choices. Things that are not right and wrong, but things that are along the spectrum of gray. Should I serve here or here? How should we love this person? Should we give them money? Should we, should, should we give them a gift? Should we invite them over for dinner? Should we befriend them? Uh, uh, what should we prioritize this year as a family? Oh, what, what, what should we do? And Paul is saying, I want you to identify the things that matter and then give your lives to those things. At our sermon review meeting earlier this week, the pastors were talking and one of the pastors mentioned that it matters what we think about. It matters what we think about. Approving what is excellent means we're pondering and putting into our minds excellent things. Are we mainly pondering how we feel or what God has said? Are we pondering how we feel primarily, navel-gazing, trying to discern, do, do I really love God? I don't know. Do I not? Rather than do what God tells you to do, love others, and God will confirm through your love that you're in Christ? Are, are we meditating on Christ? Or are we putting all sorts of mental junk food into our heads, like TikTok and Netflix and YouTube? I think part of Paul's aim is that he wants them to identify what's counterfeit, and he wants them to show the love of Christ so that God's wisdom might be channeled in and through them. Later, he calls the Philippians to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he doesn't give them a whole list of rules. He says, receive the love of God and let the transformative love of God flow through you with knowledge and discernment. The second result we see is to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. I think this result kind of goes hand in hand with Paul's earlier prayer in verse 6, right? I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. He mentions the day of Christ again, and now he's focused on them being pure and blameless. So I think this idea is of holiness. He wants the church to become more holy, spotless, wrinkle-free. So the purpose of love, one of the purposes of love within the body of Christ is to purify and to perfect the people of God. So how does that happen? How does God's love in us, through us, purify us so that we're ready for the day of Christ? I think it's this. As love abounds within the church, as members love and serve each other, there can be no envy and rivalry and selfish ambition and big egos because we're seeking to love each other. And so as we love each other, all of those things are diminishing and ultimately dying. It's hard to say, I'm going to stop having a big ego by thinking about not having a big ego. That's not how you do it. 
You do that by loving each other and saying, wow, look at how God has gifted you. I want to call out that evidence of grace in your life and praise God for it. Look at, look at what a wonderful family of faith we have with all these people, with all these gifts. And as you do that more, your, your judgment, your, your competitiveness, your, your comparison with others is just going to die. You just say, praise God. We have such amazing people in our midst. Well, look at what God's doing. And through that, as we love each other, we're getting purified. We're getting more spotless, more beautiful, more holy. Someday, when you're lying in your bed, on your deathbed, will you say, man, I really wish I didn't love so much. Way overexpended myself in the love category. Any of us going to say that? No. Or at your funeral, boy, Jim was really shrewd about who he loved. You know, he was just very discerning. Yeah, we want to be discerning. It's in there in the passage. But we want to abound in love because we're growing in our Christ-likeness. We're becoming more holy. Love is not just the cherry on the top of the Sunday, but it is the very lifeblood of the body. It is the lifeblood of the body. And love, as it's exercised within this body, cleanses us and purifies us so that we'll be ready for Christ's return. And so, let's strive to be a church that whoever walks through our doors, whatever they're wearing, whatever they look like, that they'll be able to say, these people are different. They really love God. They really love God. God. Yeah, they're uncompromising on truth, but they really love God and they loved me. They love other people. I, I, have, I have heard when it comes to the North Campus, I've heard some people say, this is the most welcoming, warm, inviting people I have ever encountered. And I've heard people say the exact opposite. This is like the, the most cold and cerebral uh, body I've ever encountered. And I'm sure the, the truth is somewhere in the middle, right? And I would just say, wherever we're at, it doesn't matter. Let's abound in love all the more so that whoever walks in our doors don't just meet a nice, shallow people, but they meet God through our love. Love is not a sign of weakness, but of holiness. Love, as we show it to one another, is not a sign of weakness, but of holiness. And we're to do this as the day of Christ approaches. Paul mentions the day of Christ three different times in the book of Philippians. He wants to depart and be with Christ. His present life is constantly being informed by this future day. He lives all of his present days in light of this future day. It's like a newly engaged couple. Brand new, recently engaged. And what do they think about? The wedding, the wedding day. Everything is about planning for the wedding, preparing for the wedding, saving money for the wedding. It's all about the wedding day. Can't wait for the wedding day. That's what Paul is like with the day of Christ. He says, everything that I'm doing now is in light of that day when Christ comes down and there will be a wedding day. It's Christ coming to take his bride, the church, and that's the day he's living in light of. And I think it's a rebuke for many of us because I think we go through life hardly for a moment thinking about that day. And yet Paul says, 
Pray in light of that day. Live in light of that day. Love in light of that day. This morning, if you're not following Jesus, we believe that love for you, we want to love you this morning, and love for you is wanting what God would want for you. And we believe that what God would want for you is for you to surrender to Jesus, to come to believe in him, repent of your sins, trust him as your only hope in this life and in the next, that you can be rid of shame and guilt. Our desire is that you would receive what God wants for you. And what he wants is a relationship with you so that you would know the immeasurable value of his son and how you can find rescue and hope in him. And if that's you this morning, any one of us would be glad to talk with you. Anyone next to you, I think, would be glad to engage you. We have a Christianity Explored class upcoming that we would invite you to and want to talk with you more about what it means to trust Jesus. Look with me at verse 11. He says that you might be pure and blameless And then I think he's illustrating it, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He's doing two things here. He's ending with a doxology, this little praise formula at the end that shows that it's all for God's glory. But then he talks about what it means to be pure and blameless, namely to be filled with the fruit of righteousness. I think he's drawing upon imagery of Psalm 1. Uh, the type of person that trusts in the Lord yields its fruit in season. Or this idea from Isaiah 5 where God is the one who plants a vineyard and waters it and cares for it. And so the idea here is that Christ is caring for his people at work in them so that they would bear fruit and the fruit of righteousness. I think this is the, the result of abounding in love that it's that they would love God more and then bear the fruits of the Spirit that we see in Galatians 5. It's this right character and behavior that results from God's power being at work in his people. So, as we conclude, it's important to notice a few things. The first thing is, this is a prayer of Paul. This is a prayer. It's not just, go out, try harder, do more, Wish you guys would love a little bit more. Paul's saying, I I know God's begun this work. I've seen your love. Look at your partnership in the gospel. And oh, I'm praying that God would cause this love to abound. And so as all prayers are, they're dependent upon God doing his work in and through his people, which is why I don't want to use love as a bludgeon this morning to say, come on, a little bit more. But say, oh, God is doing this and let's partner with him in that. We love as God's love flows in and through us. It's not a zero-sum game. You don't run out. God is going to give us more and more of his love to flow in us and through us to the world. God is at work in this body. I, I have a backyard, and I'm not much of a gardener, nor is my wife, and so we have weeds that are taller than me. Um, and you know, it's overgrown. I don't water it. I don't tend to it. I don't spray it. Uh, it, it just kind of grows, and it goes out of control. And, and that's not what happens here in the church. God is the master gardener. He's not just letting wild growth run free. 
God is tilling the soil, planting the seeds, watering daily, pruning, protecting, providing shade, warding off the the little critters that come and eat the growth, tending to us as a master gardener so that we will bear the fruit of righteousness on that final day. So that's where our confidence lies. Not in ourselves, but in our glorious and gracious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is at work in us for his glory. But it also means if you're suffering this morning, if you're feeling the weight of the world on your shoulders, if you're hurting, we want you to know that God is at work. He may be pruning you, and it doesn't feel good. You'd rather it stop, but he is the master gardener. You can trust him, and he's making us collectively, as a body, pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And my, my, the image that comes to mind of bearing the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God is that we would be like this glorious honey crisp tree. I can't wait to take my first bite of, you know, a honey crisp apple of this season that just bushels upon bushels, hundredfold of just apples that bring joy and life and smiles to the faces of all those who take of its fruit. That's us, brothers and sisters. We are that fruit And that we might bear that fruit and a world without hope says, oh, let me take, let me enjoy, and let me see the master gardener who has done this glorious thing. Do we pray like this, brothers and sisters? Do we pray for ourselves like this, that our love would abound with knowledge and discernment? Do we pray for our kids and our spouse and our church this way? It's never too late to start. If you ever think, you know, man, I want to pray for the church. What should I pray for? Pray this. Pray Philippians 1, 9 to 11. That our love would abound, coupled with right thinking and right insight, so that we would have right judgment and right living and ultimately righteousness that would glorify God. Let's be that joy-filled people praying in anticipation of that final day. As I close, would you join me as I pray this prayer for us? Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is my prayer that our love from you and for you and for one another would abound more and more. That our love would be our distinctive aroma. That love wouldn't be a slow trickle, but a raging river that brings life to all. Let our love be honed and sharpened and tethered and forged by you, knowledge of you, your ways and your word, and with all discernment, wisdom for that moment. Give us wisdom in every moment to do what is right and good so that we would approve and practice and celebrate what is truly excellent. And so be pure and blameless, clothed in the glorious righteous robes of Jesus for the day when you return, bearing the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control that comes through Jesus Christ for your glory, for your praise, for your honor, and for our everlasting joy. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.